Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 78. All Our Yesterdays. Welcome into another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. And each week on Mission Log, we dive into the past. We, we, we search through the library that is Star Trek so we can delve into an episode, pick it apart, figure out the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week's episode, City on the Edge of Forevers. Well, kind of, kind of, it's, it's actually, it's uh, all tomorrow's parties. That doesn't sound right either. Uh, wait, no, no, I, I've got it. It's, yes, it is all our yesterdays. I don't think that's it. No, I swear that that is actually it. It, it, it to, Not to be confused with City on the Edge of Forever or Tomorrow is Yesterday or uh, Yesteryear, which we haven't even gotten to yet, uh, which we will in the future today. Today, it's all our yesterdays. Well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. And if you would like to agree to disagree with us or agree about being agreeable, get in touch and let us know. On Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, the handle is Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And we do have a wonderful website. If anything ever changes with this show, and... <laughs> Not like it ever would. But if anything ever changes with this show, there's a great place to find out about it. It is our website, missionlogpodcast.com. And of course, if you send us any comments at any of those other places I mentioned earlier, remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We may indeed. And uh, yeah, good shout out for a beautiful website. I Hello. like it. That, that is, that is the, the central uh, library, the central repository for all Mission Log information. Indeed. So please go there. Uh, so Ken, we have a uh, we have a deep story to get to this week, but I'm uh, I'm champing at the bit here. Wait for, a minute. Uh, yeah, I thought we were doing all our yesterdays. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, go but, ahead. But, but before before we get to all our yesterdays, yes, uh, I have a little a little house cleaning to do here. I, I have to bust out with the trivia. Awesome. All right. So here we go. Um, Jean-Lisette Arouest, who wrote this, also wrote, Is There in Truth No Beauty? Um, and again, I think I mentioned it on that episode. These are her only writing credits. Um, she was a librarian. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, her first script was unsolicited. Uh, Bob Justman was kind of the champion for it. And that's what got Is There in Truth No Beauty made. Um, there are early drafts of this floating around, um, one entitled A Handful of Dust. And quite honestly, I, if you're interested, I would encourage our listeners to go check out um, all of that because there are some very, very different stories that were told. Uh, some had Spock and McCoy in a desert and Kirk was trapped in uh, Barbary Coast. Uh, not not huh. the TV show Barbary Coast, but he was trapped in the Barbary Coast. Um, yeah, there's a lot of differences uh, from what actually made it to air. So do check those out if you are so inclined. Um, the title, All Our Yesterdays, Ken, you'll appreciate this, is a line from Macbeth. So in our tradition of uh, we can't think of anything else, we go to Shakespeare. and <laughs> We pull out a line or a concept and, uh, and we throw it on Star Trek. Um, I, was, uh, I was very much taken in by uh, researching Marriott Hartley's life in putting together kind of the trivia and in my research for this episode. Now, here's the thing, Ken, uh, you and I probably both remember her well from that long series of Polaroid commercials in the 70s and 80s. Is it not terrible that that is what she will always be for me? I know, I know. And for those of you who are younger than maybe me and Ken, a Polaroid camera. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Oh, come on. Polaroid... Hipsters, if they're younger than us, they're hipsters and they know what a Polaroid camera is. That's true. They're, they're hipper than us. Yeah. yeah. But, but um, those ads, talk about those ads, though. Yeah. It was, it was so, her and, uh, and James Garner. And James Garner. And, and it was from like the uh, about 1976, 77 up until about 82, 84. So 
a, a good long stretch of time, there was this very well-known ad campaign for the Polaroid camera. And it was James Garner and Marriott Hartley out doing things and taking pictures of what they're doing. I remember particularly one where they were playing tennis and all kinds of stuff. And how cool is it that you can get out your Polaroid camera and have an instant photo to capture the moment? I remember those so well. And I was one of the many, many people who was convinced that they were a couple in real life. Yeah, I, well, I just You were like it, seven. I, I was very young, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I was also like seven or eight. So I thought that yeah, yeah. at first and then somewhere along the way, I... I don't know. Maybe maybe they said it in an interview or something like that. That no, right? Yeah. Well, well, funny you should mention it. She actually had a T-shirt printed up that said, "I am not James Garner's wife." And <laughs> for her kids, for her kids, she had T-shirts printed up that said, "James Garner is not my father." <laughs> oh, nice. You know what we should do? Actually, what's that? We should get in touch with our T-shirt guy. Oh yeah, yeah. And right. Have that put on a Polaroid, like on a shirt, and, and <laughs> we could sell those T-shirts. I am not James Garner's wife, and yes, I would wear one. There you go. I, I, that's a good idea. Thank you that's very much. Yeah. We'd, we'd, we'd sell easily one. Easily. To you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, Marriott Hartley was a, and still is, a well-known actress, but I just thought it was so interesting to me that from a pop culture standpoint, that's how I knew her, that's how you knew her, and that is one of the many things for which she will be well-remembered. Now, her personal life, I thought, was very very interesting. She is the granddaughter of behavioral psychologist John B. Watson. Um, do your research on that guy. Um, and had a very troubled upbringing um, and a troubled family life. Um, Watson espoused this kind of child upbringing that dictated no warm interaction. The children were not to be hugged, loved, encouraged. And it, so she was raised in this way, and as you can imagine, it sort of wreaked havoc on her family's life, on her, her, her family upbringing. Um, later on, all of these tragedies fell upon her life, uh, and it led her to become a founder and advocate for the National Association of Suicide Prevention. She actually had no fewer than three suicides in her family, um, and she has been a huge advocate um, and uh, uh, not a counselor, but a, but a, a, an advocate and a public face to try to um, bring this sort of thing out of the closet and give people the help that they need. So I thought that that was absolutely incredible, fascinating to read. And uh, she has talked quite a bit on the record about kind of overcoming depression and her family's history and reaching out to help others. I thought it was fantastic. Um, now, on to a slightly lighter subject. Um, you may notice that uh, she is wearing a, a kind of a, a skimpy fur costume in this for her cave-dwelling days <laughs> in the episode. Um, we're back to this kind of belly button controversy, which is kind of strange because, of course, we just watched The Cloudminders, in which Droxine is probably the most exposed of any female guest star on Star Trek. Uh, but sure enough, the NBC censors would not approve an earlier version of Marriott Hartley's costume in which her navel was exposed. She still showed a lot of leg. Um, and she talks about that in uh, later interviews and uh, at her far first uh, Star Trek convention appearance, which was in 2008. Um, but yes, indeed, even this late in the run and this late in the 60s, the NBC censors were still on top of that. So you, you blame the censors, but I hear it was her husband, James Garner, that was not <laughs> No, they were not married, Ken. They Are you sure? I'll, I'll get, I've seen the t-shirt. Yeah. All right, all right. <laughs> um, speaking of other guest stars, Ian Wolfe played Mr. Atos, a uh, long and very busy career. The guy has nearly 300 acting credits. Um, he's probably best known for his recurring character on WKRP in Cincinnati, uh, but he also appeared in the Star Trek episode Bread and Circuses. He played Septimus, and he even did an episode of, wait for it, Barbary Coast with William Shatner. Hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, there are at least three uh, Sarpedons in Greek mythology, three three characters or 
characters uh, who are named that with slightly different traits, um, all of whom are uh, you know sons of gods, uh, uh, mostly referred to as a son of Zeus, uh, sometimes a son of Poseidon, but that is where we get our planet name in this episode. Um, and that about does it for trivia. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at... Wait a moment. I think the paradox of time travel has me discombobulated. Please stand by. Prologue. You know what's beautiful this time of year? Exploding stars going supernova. The Enterprise will pull over to Beta Niobe and have a look as it goes belly up, beam down to make sure that the humanoids on Sarpedon are all safe, or gone, which they are. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy find themselves in a kind of computer library, and the only person left is Mr. Ataz, the librarian. Actually, there's a lot of him. He seems to pop up all over the place. He, they, he isn't too forthcoming about where everybody went. He just says all the other inhabitants left, and now they'll need to choose where they want to go to. Act 1. Everyone on Sarpedon very cleverly escaped into their own planet's past. Mr. Atos and his replicas helped everyone on their journey once they knew their planet was in danger. The inhabitants have escaped into the past, their own past, the various points in Sarpedon's history. Mr. Atos will be on his way too as soon as he gets the strangers on their way. He and his clones show Kirk the data in the library records that exist as a kind of portal into the planet's past. While previewing one scene, Kirk hears a woman scream and he runs toward the doorway to investigate, but he finds himself transported through the portal into what looks a little like Earth's 17th century. Mr. Ataz is worried because now he's lost and he wasn't even prepared to go through the portal using the Atavacron. Bones and Spock run through the portal as well, but they find themselves in a frozen wasteland. While they are freezing their ears off, Kirk is mistaken for a slave in his time. Swords are drawn and Kirk fends for himself. At least he saved the woman, but now she's a little love-struck and a little drunk. He offers to take her to the library. Wait, the library? Where's the library? Looks like we're all stuck in the past. Act 2. Spock and McCoy are also stuck, and their phasers don't even work. Kirk is looking for the door, the portal, to get back to the library, and he can't find an opening. He does start to hear voices, though. In the distance, there's Spock and McCoy explaining their predicament. They are trapped, as he is, somewhere in the past and trying to find a way back. Meanwhile, Kirk's intoxicated date thinks she's hearing spirits from beyond, She's definitely from the past, not just playing along. The sword-wielding antagonist from before shows up to challenge Kirk again. This time he's got friends, and they accuse Kirk of being a thief. Then his new date, who was all about going to the library a minute ago, stabs him right in the back by saying she overheard him talking to spirits. Off to jail for the captain. Meanwhile, Spock and McCoy are in a kind of polar vortex. It's cold. Really cold. McCoy can't take it anymore and passes out. Then, out of nowhere, a figure in an animal skin robe appears and leads the two into a cave where McCoy can recover. The hooded figure reveals herself to be a woman. A lovely young woman who kind of takes Spock by surprise, if Vulcans could experience such a thing. She is shocked to see anyone. She was banished to the tundra from her time period and can't even believe that anyone else exists. Kirk's prosecutor drops by to find out who this thief is. While interrogated, Kirk says the magic word, library. No, it doesn't make Pee-wee scream, but it makes this man very uncomfortable. He's ready to deem Kirk innocent, but the others in the jail heard the distant voices too, and the jailer isn't about to lose his standing. He denies the library and runs off, expecting that Kirk will be tried and punished. Act 3. McCoy is feeling a bit better. At least he is less frosty than when we last saw him. The young lady introduces herself. She is Zarabeth, and she has some info for Spock about the captain he keeps trying to find. He's not going to. 
There is no return to the library once you've been sent to the past. The Atavacron alters a person on a cellular level to ready them for life in an alternate time. They are stuck. And what's more, Spock is having a bit of trouble being Spock. He loses a bit of his grasp on logic and problem solving. He is resigned to being stuck. Kirk is not so resigned. He's about to face a tribunal, and he's going to fight back. No one in this time period is going to help him, and he learns from his captor also about the Atavacron. But Kirk was never prepared, and now that makes matters worse. Because of this, he has to get back, or else he will die in a few hours, stuck here in the past. The prosecutor, also being from the future, agrees to help Kirk to try to find the portal back to the other side. McCoy is practically back to his old self. He's cracking jokes, and then things get heavy when Spock reminds him that they are 5,000 years too early to meet the Enterprise. He makes it very clear that they are not going back because there is no way to get back. McCoy sees that maybe, just maybe, Spock is under the influence of Zarabeth, and that's clouding his judgment. Are they going to have to have the talk about Pon Far every episode now? Meanwhile, in Paranoid Witchcraft Town, Kirk finds the portal. You know, it's the wall that you can pass your hand through. The prosecutor runs off, and Kirk runs right back through the portal to the present day. Mr. Ataz is there, too, and he's ready to process Kirk through the Atavacron for another trip into the past. Kirk tries to explain what's going on to Mr. Ataz and his many clones, but he can't get through to them. Him. Them. Him. It even comes to a little man on old man violence, but Mr. Ataz has the upper hand with a weapon that knocks Kirk out cold. Act 4. Spock and Zarabath are making a bit of a love connection. He seems to be adapting in a weird way to his new surroundings, eating meat, telling Zarabath she's beautiful. She is definitely stuck in this time period, and Spock figures he is too. Things finally come to a head when McCoy pushes one more time for Spock to help figure a way out. Bypassing the nerve pinch entirely, he goes right for McCoy's throat when the doctor accuses Zarabath of lying about being stuck in the past. This won't do. Spock realizes that the temporal change is making him act like his unbridled Vulcan ancestors. Time to snap out of it and help himself and McCoy return home. In the library, Kirk strong-arms Mr. Ataz into helping him look for his crew. The situation is getting dire with the Enterprise waiting to warp out of the way of that eminent supernova. They're looking for the right time period and finally settle on the right spot in Sarpedon's Ice Age. McCoy and Spock can hear Kirk's voice through the portal. They're looking for the right place to enter, and just as they find it, McCoy is ready to step through. Spock wants time to say goodbye to Zarabeth. McCoy can't go through on his own. They have to make the crossing together, as they did at first. Arriving in the library, Mr. Ataz makes a mad dash for his own escape, and McCoy takes a moment to reflect on Spock's condition. Spock assures the doctor that he's all right. Everything that happened was 5,000 years ago, and Zarabath is long gone. The three beam out just in the nick of time to warp away on the Enterprise and leave what was once Sarpedon to be destroyed. I got a question. Yeah. How is the library not lousy with cats? You would think that place would be full of cats. <laughs> cats and bugs and all kinds of stuff. I mean, just from Kirk's time, or the time that Kirk went to, mm-hmm. um, they don't have like a door. They just sort of hide the entrance to the library. Yeah, like, yeah. Like behind a fake brick wall. I can't tell if it's a projection or if it's a scrim. Yeah. Or what it is, but there's really nothing stopping anything from going through. Now, they would be cats that would die fairly quickly on the other side because they're not accustomed to what I guess would be modern day um, right. Sarpedon or future Sarpedon, depending right. on, uh, you know, which side of the uh, portal you're coming from. I'm also a little bit confused about the time machine. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about the time machine. Yeah. So Kirk is sitting yeah. watching something, he hears a scream. Mm-hmm. So is the scream coming from the speaker on the thing that he's watching, or has he accidentally activated the portal? I thought that he had accidentally activated the portal. By, by putting the, the disc, the little yeah. compact disc in the computer, uh-huh. then that, that sort of makes the whole thing live. Okay, except that McCoy and Spock never put the Ice Age disc in the computer. They put it in another viewer. 
Right. But not in the one right next to the door. So well, maybe the, maybe they're all working at the same time. Uh, you whatever. know, kind of, yeah. been watching. Okay, so Kirk's been watching something. McCoy's been watching something else. Kirk runs through and ends up in his seventeen hundred whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, McCoy goes through and sees what he'd been watching, or is in what he'd been watching. Spock was watching nothing, but since he stepped through at the exact same moment that McCoy did, right, um, he ends up back where McCoy did, right. You got it. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I think you have to do a little mental gymnastics here, particularly at the portal. You you have to assume uh, that, first of all, nobody is lying about the Atavacron changing people's DNA. uh, Oh, good point. That didn't even occur to me that somebody might be lying about that. Well, right. (laughs) Right. Oh, we can't go back. Really? Yeah. Eh, Probably not. I don't know. There you go. Dude said. So so they get to the other side, and if you have been prepared, then you probably can't get back. And I also would imagine that if that memory disk hadn't been activated, at least recently activated, that maybe the portal closes itself, or maybe when the planet gets destroyed, all those portals are gone anyway. Well, because yeah. there is no portal in the future. I, I, I don't know. All right. Yeah. Uh, it's it, yeah. It, you have to sort of take all of that with a giant grain of salt. But cats, I'm on board with you because so I saw Logan's run. It taught me one thing, and that's it only takes a couple hundred years for cats to just take over the outside world. I think you're thinking of Red Dwarf. I'm thinking of Logan's run. Right. I, I I'm thinking of yeah. Red Dwarf. Then I okay, don't know. I don't know. yeah. Red Dwarf, by the way, was a spaceship. You know what's missing from this episode? What a spaceship. Where's the Enterprise? <laughs> Except Where is for the, the very, thing? very, very end. It's if you're and watching it's only, the remaster, and it's only an exterior. Yeah, well, right. and that's in the original as well. They, okay. they do show uh, uh, an FX shot of the Enterprise leaving. Um, uh, but yeah, that that that's just so strange to me that it, here we are at the end of season three. All the stuff on the Enterprise, they're all standing sets. They, they can get to them. Yeah. And this was shot before the final episode, so they were still there for that. Um, I get the idea that we lose some actors, um, so we don't have to pay our regulars. But then we also have a lot of guest stars and e- even you know small like bit players who actually have a line or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I found all of that to be very strange. You, you got a location. Well, you don't have a location, but you've got a back lot, and then you've got a set that had to be dressed for the uh, the Ice Age. You had another set that had to be built for Mr. Ataz. So, yeah, it, it's a strange use of the budget to make all of that happen. But no Enterprise, no Enterprise crew. We just hear uh, Scotty over the communicator, and that's it. Lots of people down on the planet, though, like you say. I mean, there was the guy with the hair, um, mm-hmm. and then there was the jailer. He actually got a line. Yeah. Uh, Tina Louise's mom, who was not nice... <laughs> <laughs> Not nice at all in this episode. She was drunk. She was drunk. Yeah. Okay, now here's a question. Okay, yeah. so okay, you say she was drunk, which I believe. Mm-hmm. Was her accent so good that I couldn't understand her? Was her accent so bad that I couldn't understand her? Or was she playing trouble. drunk in such a way that I couldn't understand her? Uh, it's, I, 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 all of the above. All right. All, all right. of the above. Fair yeah. enough, then. By the way, I did a little bit of uh, research on supernovas. Nerd. I, I know, but I, I thought it was interesting stuff. You may be interested to learn, Ken, uh, that they're, they're very cool. Um, they happen two or three times on average about every century in our own galaxy. Mm-hmm. They emit huge amounts of energy in the form of light and radiation, just sort of spewing forth the guts of the star and leaving the heavier elements in its path. And and that's a very good thing because that's how we get all the building blocks that make everything. Um, If you didn't have stars exploding, creating those heavy elements, well, then the universe would just be full of nothing but hydrogen and helium. Um, but because they do that and you create heavy elements, that, that's what makes you and me, Ken. Isn't that kind of poetic? Um, the force of the explosion travels at about, at the most, at about 10% the speed of light. So, yes, the Enterprise would theoretically be able to escape. I thought that was very important to know. As long as you know the exact second that it's going to happen. Uh, which you don't. They're very hard to predict. <laughs> they are, um, Not on Star Trek. 
Yeah. <laughs> Three hours and 17 minutes. Well, that's time enough to go down. Maybe we'll grab lunch. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, walk, look around a bit and uh, we'll get out in plenty of time. Don't worry. Exactly. Yeah. So thanks, thanks of course, to the to the work of the Atavacron. Right. Or right, Atavacron? Right. Atavacron? Atavacron. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good to did, see did, Gary Seven's computer getting work again. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Maybe they didn't have to pay him as much. Maybe, well, they, that one didn't have a speaking line. So really, it's just an extra at this point. Right. Right. There you go. Um, speaking of the Atavacron, mm-hmm. uh, also a little research there. I, I always like oh, this. Oh, nerd. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, but the word <laughs> is worth knowing. Uh, uh, an atavism or something that is atavistic in character. Uh, that is the, the recurrence of an older trait in an organism. So um, you could even describe behavior as being very atavistic behavior. Uh, so when we, you know, every now and then you'll hear somebody say like, oh, well, that, that's your, your lizard brain talking. You know, when you, when you do something that's sort of out of character, um, that would be an atavistic trait that compels you to do something that is maybe not, uh, uh, well, not acceptable from the modern human perspective. Uh, so, and then Kronos, obviously, the, the other part of the Atavacron, of course, describes time. Um, so I thought that was very interesting and, and that they went to the trouble to try to justify <laughs> a reason and a method for all of this to happen. Yeah, it's a cool name. You know what? Mm-hmm. I think it's actually a cool name, although it'd be better if, if this were in the animated series, which I know we haven't gotten to yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd feel better about this. Mr. A- uh, Atos. Atos? Mm. Yeah, a, a, a to Z, A to Z. Yes, a- which I didn't realize the first time or two that I was watching it, but then I watched it with the subtitles to see if I missed anything, and sure enough, the yeah. librarian is named Mister A to Z. Right, which um, is a little clever. I mean, I'm glad that it wasn't on a sign. Right. You know? I mean, it's sort of right. like you, you kind of have to find out about it, and then it's like, ah, oh, that's you know, relatively clever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I liked it. I think the only thing that I have a problem with that is that, okay, we're on an Earth-like planet, and not only are we on an Earth-like planet, Dude. they definitely speak English because they're using the same alphabet. Dude, seriously? <laughs> 70-something episodes in, you're going to start being bothered by the fact that everybody speaks English? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not so much. Okay, good. Uh, but, yeah, it, it is it is strange just because you've... Well, I, I don't know. I understand it, it, it what you're bothers. saying. I understand it, it what bothers. you're saying. But I mean, again, it was not something that we were even supposed to know. The guy's name is Atos. It's not until you see it, which in 1960, when this episode yeah, first yeah. aired, nobody was going to see it unless they read the TV guide blurb about it, right? Right. right or maybe right. some magazine. But like people watching it were just going to go, Atos. Okay. Yeah. How do yeah, you spell yeah. that? Well, I have no clue. Okay. Well, good. It's not yeah. until you see it written, which again, closed caption for the hearing impaired was, was golly, decades away at that point, yeah. right? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that Mr. Atos says that he is on his way to join his wife and family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I have to wonder if other people were given that choice, you know, uh, because the only people we encounter, of course, uh, Zarabeth was banished. Right. Um, but then the the prosecutor, the, the jailer, uh, he's kind of on his own as far as we know. Well, um, we don't really know, though. We, we don't really know. But um, I. This whole the mechanics of this whole thing, I thought were very curious because you it, it seems like given a big enough population, one that would be on a planet and have technology and be able to do things and and have a a despotic ruler like mm-hmm. what's his name Zarkon Zorkon yeah. <laughs> you know that there are a lot of people, and then you have to keep finding places to put them in the past where they can live out their lives. Yeah. Um, and I also wondered how long of a time had elapsed from the time that Mr. Atos took his job at the uh, Time Library and mm-hmm. he sent his own family away, and now he's going to join them. Because right. to process all these people who are inhabitants of uh, Sarpedon, Seems like that would take a very long time. He could have been a very young man when he started that gig. It's like, well, I'm off to visit my family now that everybody's off the planet. Yeah, there's almost too much to consider. There is. In this episode as far as like, well, how could they do that? And why would they do that? And how long has this been going on? And all that stuff. Like, why didn't the whole civilization... Well, I mean, go back to Zorkon. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Who the heck is Zorkon, first of all? <laughs> and second, yeah. okay, so how long ago did he send Marriott Hartley through the Atavacron or whatever? Right. Um, and, I mean, because of the nature of time travel, did that just happen like a year ago for her, but it was actually a thousand years ago on the planet? Because it's obvious that Zorkon is no longer in control of, of, of Sarpedon. Right. Because... The history books call him Zorkon the Tyrant. Right. Okay, right. so he's not still the leader of the planet. Unless yeah, that's well, just his thing. You know, unless he likes that. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great if we elected a president? Yeah. Who <laughs> was like, oh, call, no, 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 don't call me President uh, Smithson. Call me President Destroyer. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Really? Right. Ugh, I guess my health care is out the window, huh? Well, yeah, it's kind of strange <laughs> because he, he, at some point in their past they developed this technology to to do this to send people into the past right. zorkon decides he's going to use it as a form of punishment it's the phantom zone as far as he's concerned right right but yeah. then maybe zorkon is benevolent enough that he's like well if the sun's going to go supernova then we'll just send everybody back using this horrible punishment See. device i created <laughs> he's no tyrant and no. yeah, here's the other thing. If he was a real tyrant, why wouldn't he create it and then go back in time and then like have absolute rule over all time? Or See? here's another question. Yeah. How about sending the whole civilization back, I don't know, a million years, and then you've got like another million years to build a really awesome civilization, right? Yeah, you yeah, could, yeah. if you're a tyrant, actually take over the entire universe. I mean, you got to play the long game on this. Right. right? You can you build gotta, spaceships and go exactly, to another planet. Yeah. Exactly. Because they know... That they, you know, that they, they, they have dreamed of such things in some of their books, according to the Marriott Hartley character. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all he has to do really is, you know, believe that if he goes back in time and starts building spaceships, he'll eventually take over the universe. Because as we all know, as you believe, so shall you do. Right. <laughs> oh, no. It had to come back. <laughs> Zorkon, Gorgon. I'm just saying. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. It's right. a possibility. Hey, um, how, how many... <sighs> How are we so used to robots and doppelgangers at this point that we're not even curious about them anymore? Mm, Mr. Mm. Atos can, like, build perfect replicas of himself, and we're like, yeah, seen it. Yeah, right. I always want to use the real one because, I, you know, I've had enough with the robot thing. I had a girl. I don't want to talk about it. There was this <laughs> other girl. I don't want to talk about that either. There was a giant guy who, who killed, like, three of us. Yeah. Just step aside and let me talk to the real one. And then how right. do they test that? Are you the real one? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, let, let me beat you up a little bit. <laughs> we'll figure out who's the real one. Yeah. <laughs> Old timer, yeah. say hello to my fist. I, I thought it was weird that you could talk through the portals, because then I thought, well, why isn't everyone who ever transported back in time just having conversations with walls, with everybody else? Like, you know, oh, my neighbors went over here, but I'm stuck in this other time that's like the equivalent of, I don't know, ancient Rome. Yeah. So, But, but we're going to chat. We'll catch up. Yeah. Hey, how are, how are things in the Middle Ages where you are? Yeah. You know? It makes well, no sense to me at all. Why didn't they boy, all just go back before anybody was there and yeah. just keep living the dream? Right. Or start right. living the dream. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I just want to make sure, by the way, as you mentioned, Mr. Ataz, it, it, this is the first time we've seen Kirk beat up an old man. Well, he kicked Khan's butt and Khan was like, 200 something years old oh yeah yeah but but he had been frozen <laughs> yeah so. but Khan yeah. didn't feel young i mean you yeah, know assuming no. that i mean didn't feel old rather assuming you're yeah, only yeah. as old as you feel yeah that Khan was not an old man when he beat him up even though physically yeah. he was um yeah no he just he kind of lays waste to this 60 70 year old dude kind of although mm-hmm. the dude's got a you know a, a, a tube that that's kind of a phaser it turns out mm-hmm yeah. right Right. Yeah, that's it. Um, and, and I thought it was very interesting. Mr. Atos says, you know, I'm basically I'm trying to save you. So I'm going to push you through this portal again against your will unprepared. And I know that you'll die on the other side. Oh, no. You see, I figured that he actually when Kirk was unconscious that he prepared him. But that does then raise the question. OK, so if if he prepared Kirk yeah. to go back in time. Right. Does Kirk staying here mean that Kirk's going to die? Well, yeah, he better get to sickbay if he starts displaying some of those atavistic characteristics, shouldn't he? Like believing in witches? Yeah. What happen. would what would what would these symptoms be? Also, why do the symptoms of traveling back five thousand years only affect Vulcans but not humans? Yeah, because well, McCoy is like, hey, think about what was going on on your planet five thousand years ago, and yeah, you know, it's like, well, think about what's going on in the next room. I'm here right yeah. now, so that shouldn't affect me, but in this story, it does. 
Right. Because of what was going on in Vulcan 5,000 years ago, savages. Um, (laughs) Then then Kirk, Spock, excuse me, becomes a savage. What was going on 5,000 years ago on Earth? Uh, It's not going to affect bones at all. That that was pretty strange. I mean, but I guess if you if you figure that <laughs> maybe Vulcans evolved in a very different way, although there's no evidence to suggest that. But if you figure then the 100 to 200,000 years that human beings have been on Earth, 5,000 years, we actually haven't changed that much in 5,000 years. I guess Vulcans are just uh, moving along in a very accelerated clip. Um, but it still wouldn't make sense for that to happen. No. No, it, no it, not it at all. Really, would not. Yeah, I, I kind of like the uh, the mind screwery, if mm-hmm. I may say so, that we get that Spock's girlfriend from not one minute ago died five thousand years ago. Uh, I, I kind of like a story that will play with your perception of time, um, just because it sort of connects the viewer to the immensity yet scarcity of time. So that that's something that I thought was kind of a, a cool way to cap this episode. As you know, I'm a fan of the uh, the sort of ambiguous ending and yeah. uh, we're we're left with this sort of weight on Spock. I don't know. know though. He tried to be all cool about it, but she's dead. He tried. Now. She's yeah. dead now, dead and buried. Well, not buried because there was actually nobody there to bury her, but dead and laying somewhere. <laughs> so that's a great way to end. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 13, The Conscience of the King. I apologize, still seem to be suffering some time travel related issues. Please stand by. So I gotta say, as I'm watching this, I found myself wishing they had found somebody besides Mariet Hartley in the Tundra. What? Yeah, what? Well, I, no, stick with me. Okay. Bite your tongue, Ken. Well, Hearts. I wish what they had found was a kid, honestly, mm-hmm. instead of a woman. And there's only one reason that I that I wish that. Um, when McCoy is accusing Spock of not really being in his senses, mm-hmm. he he says, um, you know, he's being led astray. Well, he basically says he's being led astray by this woman. Yeah. In an accusatory way. He doesn't just say, we're being led astray by this person. He says, she's a woman (laughs) who is being whatever. And the thing is, I mean, it's a a certain sort of stamp of sexism. And the thing is, this is not an episode about sexism. Right. And yet that almost makes it feel like it's more important to point it out because it's not an overly sexist episode. We are instead just casting her as evil temptress. She's Eve. Mm-hmm. Which you know is a bad word, and a lot of traditions, uh, whether it should be or not, is is up for debate. And so that's why I think it's worth pointing out here. I would have loved it if if it had been a kid, honestly, especially you know given how important fatherhood is in the Vulcan uh, history, according to Spock, a couple yeah, of episodes ago. Spock's, Spock's got that down. He's got the fatherhood thing down. Well, and also because of his daddy <laughs> issues. I mean, it would have been <laughs> right. really interesting to see something else kick in there besides you know, yeah. hey, it's a woman. Especially because then, I mean, we've got her as being this, you know, this, 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 this temptress type person. Um, now, that said, it is Marriott Hartley. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I wouldn't miss her if I didn't know that she was supposed to be there. But now knowing that she's supposed to be there, it is very hard for me to say, no, no, no. Replace Mrs. Garner with someone else. Right. Well, the, there was not a Zarabeth in the original script. It, it was just bad guys, and they were running away from the bad guys. And oh, that, it, that, that's silly. And it is, yeah. And here's the thing. I, I, I get where you're going with this, and I, and I rewatched that scene before we recorded, um, and and I, I get your interpretation of that, and I think that obviously played into uh, D. Kelly's read of that line right. is, yeah, she's the woman, she's a temptress. But here's the thing. I feel like I can kind of give them a pass on this because just from a dramatic storytelling point of view, what builds the drama, what builds attention better than having a deep personal relationship to take Spock away from his duties because it's not a thing that we get to do with Spock very often because yeah. he's not a guy who has deep, you know, romantic relationships. So this is sort of like 
<laughs> the, the many, many extra steps that McCoy has to go through to shake him out of it. Um, and, and it's not going well for McCoy, certainly. He, yeah. he gets his throat grabbed. Um, but I kind of like that choice just because we we really drive home how different a Spock this is. And in her defense, we let Zarabeth off the hook. She wasn't being the temptress. She wasn't being malevolent in any of this. She was only saying what she knew. Um, and she assumed that that was the same for Spock and McCoy. Now, had Spock been in his right mind and had McCoy been, you know, fully himself and not out of it for several hours, several days, we don't know how long this took, um, they may have been able to do a little more investigation. Wait, with we, we, we know how long it took. It took less than three hours and 17 minutes. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Here's yeah. the thing, though. Okay, it, it, and, it felt like it could have been a long time. Yeah. And look, I'm not saying that this is, you know, I'm, again, I'm not saying this is a huge deal, but you're saying, oh, well, you get that emotional pull. Okay, imagine yeah. this, right? Mm -hmm. Forgive me for doing the whole retcon fanfic thing. <laughs> right. But imagine Spock having to leave, like, a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. I mean, if, if he's got yeah, some sort yeah. of really deep fatherly something that's been excited by his, you know, cave Vulcan mentality all of a sudden. Right. Uh, imagine him having to say, no, 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 really, the, the good thing to do here is leave this 12-year-old alone in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It just, I mean, it, it's, like I say, I mean, it, it's not a big deal. And I think because it's not a big deal, because it's just sort of accepted, well, of course, she's going to be a temptress because she's a woman. Uh, that's, yeah. that's why it feels like it's important to point out. But it's certainly not, a, it's not important to spend a lot of time on because there's a lot of other stuff to get to. And they still could have used that same line at the end. Well... That child died 5,000 years ago, <laughs> dead, dead and buried. Kids, well, not buried because there's no, no there's nobody oh, there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So sad. Um, I, I do have to say that, you know, I was really fascinated by the concept of this, the idea that to escape the future, you hide in your planet's past. I, I'm a fan of time travel episodes and time travel stories, just kind of no matter what. So it's a cool sci-fi idea, and yet so inherently flawed no matter which theory of time travel you subscribe to um if we go with the theory that we're creating multiple parallel timelines every time we change something then we're going to end up with an infinite number of versions of sarpedon maybe somewhere the library is never even built because library is a bad word if you go to uh, Kirk's time, you don't even say the word library. Right. So you keep messing with these multiple parallel timelines. If you go with the, the other idea that every time we go back, we just change something. And then that changed the sort of uh, the, the same track of time that we're in. We're just screwing up things left and right. And it may be something that is fine. Maybe the letter M is gone <laughs> in the new future. But you, it may be something really terrible, like uh, Zorkon has taken over from the beginning of time. Right. You know? Uh, so, great idea, but, but wow, what a, what a rough concept that, that you have to deal with. Um, we have to assume that the people of Sarpedon are really good at blending in and hiding their identities. Uh, there are not a lot of people I'm confident that could do that good of an acting job today. Um, and there's not even one Biff Tannen in the bunch going back and building a casino and uh, just doing whatever he can for personal profit, as you described earlier about maybe what Zorkon could have done. Yeah, well, um, at least not in the timeline that Kirk ends up in. No, I mean, maybe that person only went back 100 years. Yeah, we don't yeah. really know. It's. I mean, it's it, here's the thing. I like a good time travel story, mm -hmm. and I I had a lot of problems with this one. Yeah, it's a messy time travel story. It's a very messy time travel story. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. If I had to go back in time to escape something, if that were an option to me, right. um, the, the cutoff date for me is any time after the creation of anesthesia and antibiotics. <laughs> So, and, and in human history, that leaves me with a relatively recent period. You yeah. know, I, I'd last a day maybe in another time. Like, try the food, drink the wine, and then get me back home where I can brush my teeth. You yeah, know? I don't. I it's you're either giving this story too much credit, or you're thinking about this story too much. 
I'm I doing mean, both. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> all right. As we pointed out before, there are a lot of holes and a lot of mental gymnastics you have to do to to get around this. But but then I, I really came down to well, you know, what part of the story do we even focus on? You know, um, the uh, Spock's kind of character exploration, which I, I thought was very interesting, even if evolution doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, kind of the the tragedy of Zarabeth. Uh, she was a a prisoner um, from Zorkon uh, and. Is seemingly not rightfully so. It was just because of the people she consorted with, she says, uh, who planned to overthrow Zorkon. And uh, here she is with this horrible fate thrown back to a time where probably she was not expected to live. She seems like a very nice person, a bit naive, um, and I feel bad for her. Um, and I, I thought that there were other interesting elements here to the the, the character stories, you know, like uh, being complacent versus going through what needs to be done. It's interesting to see Spock suddenly become so complacent with where he is and just accepting what he is told is fact, um, you know, and, and him choosing to stay ignorant because of personal influence. Um, And then we get to explore Spock's loyalty with McCoy a bit more. I I thought that their interplay was really great, even if we don't buy a lot of the premise here. Kirk, William Shatner as Kirk, is the star of the show. But this is an episode where Kirk is not the star of the episode. And I thought that was really interesting to watch. I was much more invested in the Spock-McCoy story from the beginning. Yes. and uh, and I thought this was great. And we, we got to go back to that point where we we talk about Spock's loneliness. We talked about that in previous episodes where he is inherently and deeply lonely and separated from everybody else. So there's another way for him to bond with Zarabeth. But then they will both live at their live out their lives, her five thousand years ago, him in the present, Star Trek's present completely detached and lonely and he cannot go back to that we're kind of back on omicron seti 3 in that respect take away his girlfriend again (laughs) you know (laughs) well take away his ability to reason and his girlfriend yeah 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 it's like spock spock has his own edith keeler now well he's got a couple doesn't he yeah i guess I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you talk about the 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 relationship examination between uh, McCoy and Spock. I didn't think mm-hmm. it was really neat that you know, as McCoy is about to die, you know, in mm-hmm. the in the Winter Wonderland, Spock's like, "No, if you don't go, I don't go. We don't go. I mean, we're yeah. we're we're a team, you know." And that's that's neat to see, although it's not exactly unexpected. Um, the one that I have uh, a problem with actually is Kirk. Um, Kirk being willing to sacrifice himself to save Spock and McCoy, you know, points to him for that. I I, I expect nothing less from Captain Kirk, especially when it's, you know, uh, uh, Bones and Spock that are uh, that are at risk. Right. Right. Uh, right. Points off to Kirk for being willing to sacrifice Mr. Atos. (laughs) Right. um, Or Atos or however you say it. I've already forgotten how to say it. I know the name, but I've forgotten how to say it. Um, and also the other traveler from the planet's future, he's like, hey, listen, you help me or I'm going to turn you over to the Inquisition and they're going to burn you. I mean, yeah. and not burn you like, you know, like, ah, dude, but more like, you know, burn you like set you on fire. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I love the fact that he'll do what he can to save Bones and, and Spock. But does his yeah. willingness to to sacrifice other people that weren't even part of this whole thing? Not cross into a bit of selfishness. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it goes from being good leader to being, um, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sort of like uh, somebody who's having a tantrum. Somebody who, yeah, if they don't yeah. get their way, they are ruining this party for everyone. And by ruining this party, I mean getting you killed. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. I, well, I, I agree. But I mean, the, the, there is a point where self-preservation sort of uh, weighs out on the other factors. Um well, self-preservation is one thing, but making sure yeah. that everything is exactly the way I want to be. Because here's the deal. Mm-hmm. This is not about saving McCoy and Spock. Mm-hmm. Okay? McCoy and Spock are alive, and Kirk knows that. And as far as he knows, they will be fine. He does not know that they're going to die in their time because they weren't prepared by the, uh, by the big supercomputer, right? Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is really just about having everything the way he needs everything to be. I mean, you say that it's weird that Spock just sort of accepts his fate. 
Yeah. But, I mean, Spock accepts his fate. Kirk does not accept his fate. And if you don't help him do something that you think is impossible, he will kill you. <laughs> right. I mean, he'll, and that's, he'll beat and up an old man. He yeah. says, well, not even beating up the old man. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about he will turn superstition on the guy, the other guy from the future and yeah. have him killed for no yeah. better reason than he won't help him. I mean, right. he says that if you don't help me, I will turn you over to these people. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's a good threat, and maybe he wouldn't have actually done it, but he sure is saying he would do it. He also locks up the uh, librarian until he can figure out how to get his people back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He locks he sure up the does, librarian yeah. on a planet whose son is about to go supernova. Like, literally, yeah. about to go supernova. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <sighs> let's talk about uh, Spock's line. Which line? Um, so he's being goaded by McCoy, mm-hmm. and he he turns around and says, "I don't like that. I don't think I ever did." And I have to say, here, here to Spock, standing up for yourself. You've been taking a lot of verbal abuse from your shipmates, and uh, but then I wondered, well, well, maybe Spock didn't hear Uhura's line to Lincoln about not fearing words, because you know may, maybe that would have helped him. Well, thinking Spock did, but I mean he's regressive Spock at this point, right? Or aggro yeah, Spock. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I mean, it's interesting. He says, I don't, I, what, what was it exactly? I don't I, like I that. I don't like that. I don't think I ever did, but now I'm sure. Yeah. See, I mean, I think a more evolved Spock sort of is in the place that Uhura was of like, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Call me that. I don't care. What do I care? Yeah. You're just being dumb. It is interesting, though, that, I mean, I've always sort of seen it as like, oh, the irascible Dr. McCoy, you know, making fun right. of Spock, uh-huh, and their pals still and all that stuff. He really is, I mean, he really is calling him, he is hurling invective at him, isn't he? Yeah. It did not occur to me until this episode. I mean, he's, he's, he's throwing around a pejorative. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and you can say, well, he doesn't really mean it, but you try that where you live today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then right. go, whoa, whoa, I didn't really mean it. I thought we were cool. We're not there, huh? Yeah, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> um, one other element of the story that I thought was kind of cool, and I'm going to get a little bit off track, uh, but it, it was kind of neat. So you and I are saying that you know we both really like a good time travel story, a good time travel story. Yes, a, and, good, a good time travel story is a thing of wonder. Yeah, yeah. And we were both kind of captivated by the idea of memory alpha, even though the story of the lights of Zetar, uh, Zetar, was not that great. Um, but I just watched a thing not long ago that I thought was really cool. It was a TED Talk about the idea of building a virtual library through time and using the same kind of connections that we create through social media to create a very vivid picture of the past. So having just watched this and then watching the episode All Our Yesterdays multiple times, seeing this idea of a library of the future, this is something that is being conceptualized today. The idea that you can go into a place, search for information, and then a computer will essentially draw together all the parallel information to create a much more vivid picture rather than just a list of dates and people's names. Um, The idea that you could ask a computer something like, um, what was the yearly salary of a gold merchant in Venice in 1580? And because a computer can pulled together information about, well, uh, what did things sell for at the time? How much was rent on a building at the time? Uh, Where did people live? Where did they eat? How did they buy things? It could actually pull together that kind of information for you and show you a slice of the past. So even though we're dealing with science fiction here, even though we're dealing with the the classic science fiction concept of actually going back into time – I was captivated by the idea because I had just heard this in this sort of conceptual standpoint that really resonated with me. I thought it was very, very cool. Can I talk about one of the trippiest parts of the episode for me? Please do. So Spock introduced himself to Zarabath, mm-hmm. right? And he's all like, yeah, I'm from a different planet and I'm from the future and you've never <laughs> seen anything like me. And Zarabath's right. like, that is totally awesome. And then she's like, wait a minute. I've been here by myself for a while, and also I'm here by myself, so I'm going crazy. Mm-hmm. And how does Spock convince her that he's not crazy? Dude, I totally believe in me. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> That's, yes. But, but I love yeah. it. And he says, yeah. I am firmly convinced that I do exist. I am substantial. You are not imagining this. Yeah. Now, I love this idea. It proves nothing. I right. mean, you know, I mean, right. we know that Spock is real, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. But it really, I mean, it should not prove anything to Zarabeth, and yet it does. Um, and for some reason, it reminded me of something that should have nothing to do with this at all. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Emperor Norton II? Uh, not at all. Ruler of uh, ruler of the United States and protector of Mexico. Okay, he's this guy who was like a he was a he was a speculator, I guess you would say. He bought all of the rice that was coming into port in San Francisco in eighteen something eighteen mm-hmm. like the mid eighteen hundreds, right? Okay, he got a lock on all of it. And what he was going to do was he was going to corner the rice market and be rich. And it would have worked, except there was a ship that he didn't know about. There was a ship he didn't know about that came in early. And so Mm. he lost his shirt because he leveraged himself, you know, completely to to buy all the rice. And uh, and he didn't get it. So he wasn't able to control the price. So, you know, left town, destitute, broke, whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what his name was then. But he came back to San Francisco a few years later uh, with a big hat. And and with uh, those things on his shoulder, and and had deemed himself Emperor uh, Emperor Norton, um, ruler of the United States and protector of Mexico, uh. <laughs> and he was just like telling people that he was like the ruler, right? He was like, "You uh. listen to me," and he would do things like he would make proclamations, like nobody was allowed to call San Francisco Frisco. Anybody who did was fined twenty five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> or what should be to find $25. And he started making his own money. He would give people his own money. Wow. And because he believed it, just, I mean, it's that whole, as you believe, so shall you do thing again. Because he believed that. This is great. He didn't even <laughs> try to, like, convince anybody. He just acted like it. It's like Groucho Marx, like, putting on the, the, the grease paint mustache, right? Right. No, nobody yeah, yeah. questions the grease paint mustache because he walks around like it makes sense. And so yeah. people are like, well, that makes sense. Emperor Norton like like uh, wrote letters to Queen Victoria that apparently were acknowledged. Wow. Yeah, it, it's really – and so I love the whole idea that, you know, you know how you know I'm sane? I said so. <laughs> right. You know how right. you know I'm here? Look at me. I said I'm here. It's just wow. – it's it, – honestly, Spock's logic – well, and I'll put that in quotes. Spock's logic in that argument was about as logical as Emperor Norton – and yet that kind of logic can work sometimes. Yeah, he was hoping that Zarabath had not hit the class yet on empirical testing, <laughs> you know. But even if she did, it would have worked because he was there. <laughs> but uh, but wow, yeah, he, he's just, uh, yeah, he's just playing fast and loose with the logic. I love it. I love it. I think we should all use that from now on. With Captain Vlahark and his crew back aboard the old 1701X, time now for John 5.0 and Kenbot 4000 to figure out the yikes. I may have skipped ahead a bit. Ken, I feel like you and I have been kind of all over the map on this episode. Not not that we've been argumentative with each other or anything, but I, I feel like we've hit highs, we've hit lows, things we liked, things we didn't like. And now we get to this very difficult place where we have to sort of bring it all together. So we start out with the question, does the episode hold up? Um, there are a lot of ways to look at that question. And um, because this was kind of challenging, I, I, I have to ask you first now, what does this episode hold up to you? And if it does, in what, in what way? It doesn't. Mm. It, do- it doesn't hold up to me. I mean, this mm. episode felt like they had uh, half an idea for one story and half mm-hmm. an idea for another story and then trying to figure out if there was a way to put them together. Um, this episode could also have served as a uh, pilot for something else, something like, you know, uh, Time Tunnel or Quantum Leap or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been two decent episodes of the cartoon, I think, which we haven't gotten to yet. And I don't remember if I said that earlier or not, but... Um, this this episode just does not work for me at all. Well, I say at all. Um, it is always fun to watch Leonard Nimoy change. Yeah, watching Spock deal with his regression is fun. 
Although you do get smiling Spock, so you kind of know that, you know, things are not going to go perfectly. <laughs> right. Um, what's really interesting in watching his performance, Nimoy's voice goes from logical to menacing without going far. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like when Shatner acts big, um, when his personality changes, I mean, he, he, he's big. He is sawing the air with his arm thus and, you know, all the bad acting stuff. And he's not a bad actor. I don't want letters. Mm-hmm. He's doing all the bad acting stuff. I mean, he's 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 over the top. Yeah. Um, maybe it's because uh, Spock has always played so reserved that it doesn't take much change for a change to be great in his character. Nimoy acts with subtlety when he changes, and and that's wonderful to see. His voice, which is always resonant, there's there's something else there that mm-hmm. is is honestly really just a joy to listen to. I don't know if he can still do that voice. I think age might have taken some of that away. Um, but his voice is just incredible in this episode. Um, he is, well, and looking at Marriott Hartley, these are the two things that make this episode great. Mm -hmm. Uh, that said that the holes in the time travel possibilities were so, um, they were too prevalent for me to say that this episode works. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give it a little more of a pass than you did. Um, I'm going to give it a marginal it holds up for me. Um, We've had some bad episodes, but strangely, as we get toward the end, uh, the the last half of season three, we're finding things to talk about. Uh, We found some real issues to talk about. And we've also had some things that are just entertaining and i guess it's on the strength of nimoy and on the strength of d kelly um and their interaction as their characters that i i was entertained by this episode um and i was still intrigued by the whole time travel aspect of it just to come up with a bizarrely creative science fictiony way to treat this problem uh, of what what will this culture do in order to survive. Um, It makes no logical sense to do that, obviously. But here we are in the realm of fantasy slash science fiction. So we'll we'll do it anyway and we'll explore that and we'll put our heroes in danger and see what happens. I was taken in by all of that. Um, And yet I agree with you about all the problems that this episode has. So um, even though I agree and even though there are many things about it that I enjoyed, um, I'm going to give it a pass and say that it does hold up, but it's a marginal. It's holding up with an asterisk. Um, I, I think you have to enjoy it for the character exploration because let's face it, we all love Spock and we all love to see Spock kind of uh, change at any point and learn more about him and learn more about Vulcan and that's what we get out of this episode. Yeah, and don't misunderstand, it's not a painful episode. I mean, we have definitely seen worse. Yeah, yeah. There's absolutely no question, but and maybe it's because of my love for time travel that I can't give it a pass because Mm -hmm. there's just too much here that doesn't make sense. They've done stuff that makes, they've done time travel stuff that makes a bit more sense before. I mean, there are always some problems with the time travel, with the exception maybe of City on the Edge of Forever. And maybe that's part of the problem that I had, too. I mean, this just reeks of City on the Edge of Forever yeah, without yeah. without sm- without without uh, smelling wonderfully of City yeah. on the Edge of Forever. <laughs> right. It just kind of smells like it a little bit. You know, you're sort of like, what's right. that? Is that City on the Edge of Forever? No, it's not. <laughs> so right. I don't know what it is. Um, I'm kind of bummed out by that. So would we say then that this is, I don't want to say just, Mm-hmm. As if that's a small thing. Would we say that this is just a um, character exploration episode, or do you think there was a, a message or a moral uh, in there that maybe escaped me? It, it is primarily a character exploration episode, and that okay. is primarily about Spock and McCoy. We we get little of Kirk, um, and maybe had this been a different story written differently, we would have gotten more out of Kirk. Um yeah, I, if you were to try to mine a message out of this, I think you'd have to look pretty deep. I, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier where I said, yeah, the, the, you have this thing where Spock is sort of resigned to uh, to what he's being told. He needs to kind of snap back into logical mode to actually decide if his complacency is the best tactic um, uh, instead of figuring out what needs to be done um we do get to look at loyalty i think these are more themes than they are messages um instead of telling you uh 
the you see Timmy moment, which we don't get in this episode at all. Uh, but again, to me, that doesn't make it a bad episode. Again, I'm going to give it more of a pass than you do. Um, and, and that's not contingent upon its ability to give me a message. Uh, what about you, Ken? Character piece? Uh, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess the one thing that I would say, it's kind of interesting because you seem to be you seem to be examining this episode in a different way than you do others. There have been mm. episodes mm. that I like that you didn't, and you sort of hold it up. The test that you hold up is, would this be the episode that you would show to somebody who had never seen Star Trek for the first time? If you're watching every episode of Star Trek, or if you already know these characters and love these characters, then it's an okay episode to watch. Turn your brain off. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. Because you're going to get some good you know, Spock and McCoy interaction. Uh, you'll get some good McCoy and Spock interaction. Um, there's a little bit of Spock and McCoy interaction, <laughs> but that's okay because they're great yeah. characters and they are great characters that are often overshadowed by Kirk. So, I mean, I guess let me, I'll, I'll do an asterisk as well. Mm-hmm. This episode holds up. If you're already a fan of Star Trek, if you're looking yeah. for something to represent Star Trek, look elsewhere. Yeah. I, I can see why this episode has legs uh, because I, I didn't mention this earlier because we try to hold ourselves to just talking about canon Star Trek. What, you know, what is on screen is canon. Um, but this story has taken on a life of its own. It, it, it bears mentioning that there are at least two very well-regarded spinoff novels that, that are kind of what-ifs about the character of Zarabeth and about uh, Spock and McCoy and all of this. And uh, so there is something about it that has captivated Star Trek fans. But I I agree with you. If you're trying to hold it up as the best of what Star Trek has to offer, particularly to somebody new, then it probably falls short of that. Uh, Totally agree with you on that. Um, But hey, Ken, we're, we're in the home stretch here. I can't believe it. Next week, it's our last look at TOS Turnabout Intruder. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 78, All Our Yesterdays. Did we do that part already? and transmission.